about, about the relationship between the news media and intelligence. Uh, intelligence in its broadest sense. That's not to say that news media are not intelligence, not intelligent, but the, the intelligence in the sense of the secret services. Um, we have an expert on the secret services in the media whose main uh, work is on the connection between the two and how the two relate or don't relate. And that's uh, Paul Lashmar from Brunel University. He's been a investigative reporter for much of his career for The Observer, uh, for uh, The Independent, and in between for a program uh, which, alas, is no longer with us called World in Action, which for many years was one of the main, indeed the main, the main investigative program programs on television, uh, put out by Granada TV, also no longer with us, I think. Um, He's going to speak for the usual half an hour or so about media and intelligence, and then we'll have a discussion. Many thanks for coming. Good afternoon. Um, John's given a very good opening synopsis of who I am. Um, I, I thought I would just add a few bits of detail that might explain my long-standing interest. Um, my, my interest in intelligence came really what you would describe as post-Watergate, because I'm of the post-Watergate generation. I came into journalism shortly after Watergate. And while I was still a student, I was working with uh, a lecturer who effectively was my mentor and, and, and got me involved with investigative journalism, but I came into it at the time when people were concerned about what the CIA were busily doing at that time and the whole question of whether they were trying to assassinate uh, Fidel Castro and uh, the various other operations, including uh, occasionally looking and getting involved in surveillance, domestic in, uh, in surveillance in the United States. So I, I was of that sort of ilk, the lefty. Um, I was, I was really, I, that was where I came out of the old lefty tradition of looking at what the state did. And my lecturer um, was an interesting guy. He had, uh, um, he's still around. He. Um, had worked before I met him. He had done a lot of work on the involvement of the CIA in the labour movement um, during the Cold, early Cold War period. So he had carried a lot of knowledge. And he engaged me and some other people in a research project was essentially he picked up from a footnote in a book the concept that there was something very odd had happened after World War II that actually the British, British intelligence effectively and the Foreign Office had, had engaged itself in a massive involvement in what you might call media manipulation. And this was done through a foreign office department called the Information Research Department, uh, which ran from 48 through to 77. Uh, this department came out of the, uh, the wartime special operations executive, the idea of uh, intelligence being uh, proactive, not just gathering information, but actually uh, engaging propaganda and uh, various covert uh, manipulations. So uh, he noticed this footnote and realised that this must give him a serious link. So over about a two-year period, I and a number of other people spent our time rooting around buildings, in libraries, piecing together uh, how this operation had worked and how it had translated from the Special Operations Executive into this new Foreign Office Department, which was very much a reaction. It was a very early reaction to the Cold War, the Soviet Union, and what it was trying to do to counter the very effective, they felt, uh, Soviet propaganda operations. And this has been a recurrent theme. I, I, you know, this isn't uh, the, the Information Research Department was a very interesting operation. It was quite substantial. 
And I, I still feel that, uh, you know, I've looked at it constantly through my career. Um, and it, uh, I published a book on this in 98, co-authored with uh, a guy who's now a Panorama producer called James Oliver. And uh, one of the things I was really fascinated about was the, the proactive nature of intelligence at that point. Because the Information Research Department, uh, it briefed, and it briefed secretly. So it had an enormous amount of power, because what it did was utilise often intelligence information. It got material from MI6 or, or wherever, and, and sometimes the CA, and it passed it through to selected people. And uh, I was interested in this, because even I was only 22 at the time, realised that this was a, a very powerful tool to actually to be able to change um, changed the way people view things, but also it had a big impact, I think now, on the whole way that the media worked at that time. And, and I, I still don't think it's really realised that this MI6 Foreign Office Department was running news agencies across the world. I mean, in Latin America, uh, in India, in, in many parts of the country, through the Middle East, through Suez, that were actually acting on behalf of the British government, covertly, covertly funded, they, at that point, they involved Reuters. Reuters was taking money from the British government to do this. And uh, it also published, it had book publishers and funded publishers to publish books that were anti-Soviet. And, uh, and I, I thought at that stage, and I still do, this wasn't really an appropriate role for government to act in a, in a covert operation of this kind. So that was really where I you know, started off. And, you know, and I, I was, I'm really interested now, I look back, and now I'm an academic, and you're, a lot of you will recognise this, that you know, it's really important for me, as an academic, even at this stage in my career, that I publish papers and I publish books, and that you know, it's part of what you're seeing to deliver and how your career goes. And then you look back to a period in the 50s and 60s where the Foreign Office effectively was feeding information to a large number of academics that it thought were appropriate, enhancing their career, allowing them to publish in a range of different uh, books, uh, different um, uh, journals of, the, of the, that period. It, uh, they were influential. Uh, they, uh, uh, they, uh, they would get to very large numbers of people. And also, there were a lot of journalists who were, at, were getting this information. Now, what they do is they very carefully selected which journalists they were going to give the information to, and um, they would give them what was effectively intelligence information. Now, any journalist who operates in this area knows that intelligence information can be very influential. If you're given it, it gives you power because it looks very impressive to your editors, and it will enhance your reputation. So I, I still feel that this is an area that isn't really well researched. The impact that the um, that the uh, that the, the information research department had on the intellectual and academic life in the UK in that period is still somewhat an, an under, under-researched, under-discussed area. So it was, it was very interesting doing this as a student. And eventually, we took it to the Observer in 70, 1978, and I got my first byline in 1978 at the Observer, and it was about that story. We broke the story of the existence of this organisation, and I've continued to look at that. I started the Observer as a, as a researcher, and I fairly quickly became an investigative reporter. And throughout my whole career, 
it's, I've always had a very strong interest in intelligence. And it's always been rested on what I learned very early on, that you know, the, the potential for intelligence to exceed its boundaries, the need for transparency uh, and accountability in intelligence has always been very clear in my mind. So I watch with interest. And when I was, uh, as an investigative reporter on the, uh, on, on, the, uh, on the Observer and then subsequently on other places, uh, I've always sort of watched to see what was going on. And this has led me into a number of really, quite, I thought, quite interesting stories. Um, uh, and I'll just run through the, you know, there's a couple of things that really I think uh, were significant at the time. Um, in about 30 years ago, we did a story which looked at uh, the, the way MI5 had been vetting BBC staff. So we, we were on the Observer, my partner and I, who was David Lee, uh, who's just resigned as the, uh, retired as the Guardian's uh, investigations editor. Uh, he and I did this story which revealed that MI5 had been vetting who was in the BBC and who couldn't be in the BBC. And they, it had been very powerful. There was an MI5 officer sitting in, uh, in the BBC headquarters who was working out who could come in. So this is the sort of level of intervention that we became very aware of and continued. And in, in 87, we were involved with 86. From 86, we were involved with what was the spy capture affair, where a former MI5 officer went to Australia and he chose to publish what he thought was a series of scandals about how MI5 had operated in the early Cold War period. And this was very controversial. Um, we were in competition at that point with the Sunday Times, uh, particularly, and the government didn't like the fact that we were attempting to publish what he was saying in Australia, and they they sought an injunction against us and we were injuncted for a long while by the British government. Eventually we took it to the European Court of Human Rights and we partly won, but I think we established, you know, some very clear rules about what could and couldn't be said. So that, that sort of theme has underlined what I've done. Uh, I'm, um, John mentioned I was a world national. I didn't really do very much intelligence work there um, because of the stories I was covering were other. Uh, but then I, I started working as a freelance producer in the mid-90s and actually then I did some work on more historical because I've always had an interest in historical and I did a lot of work on spy flights and uh, that was another intelligence. So another aspect of that kind of area uh, of, of intelligence related work and uh, uh, so I, I did that, produced a book and then I moved to Independent in, the, in 98 and that came as a time, it's sort of, it's got a slight Snowden feel, but a much more UK based, because there was a number of former MI5 and MI6 officers came out saying that they were very unhappy about the way the services were running. So I spent a lot of time talking to them, finding out what they were doing. So got a, you know, quite a useful insight, but I found a lot of other things were going on. For instance, uh, at that point, I did a story, I recall where, um, the, uh, the MI6, I discovered, had been using journalistic cover uh, in a number of countries. They'd been operated in Bosnia, Kosovo, uh, Kosovo and other places using uh, NUJ cards and uh, raised, you know, that raises a number of other issues about the relationship between intelligence and the media. Um, so I, I've continued to do this then. Uh, I then started working for the Independent on Sunday, and I started working for them just 
at 9-11. So from 2001, um, I effectively covered for the independent Sunday newspaper domestic terrorism. And I um, first did 9-11, then we did the Iraq war, the Afghan war, we did all the Tony Blair stories about um, about the, the, what was known here as the dodgy dossier, where force information, you know, the we of we about weapons of mass destruction was brought. We'd, uh, in, you know, we looked at that story. We, I think, were, if you look back and looked at the coverage by the Independent Sunday in that period, you will see that we were, I think, really quite sceptical about what was going on, perhaps more than some of our rival newspapers, The Observer, for instance. We really, uh, I think, held our own. And this ran along through this period, uh, and we did 7-7. One of the things that had happened about 1999 was, while I was on the Independent Sunday, as I was, a pro, uh, while I was on the Independent, was that there had been a new relationship, a, a, a new attitude emerging from MI5. I mentioned Spycatcher, and I mentioned, uh, well, I didn't name, Peter Wright was the key figure, a former very senior MI5 officer who uh, produced the book Spycatcher, and in that, he outlined what had been happening in M5. And it was, I think, one of the things about Spycatcher that was really important is it really revealed what a dysfunctional organisation it had been post-Second World War for a good 20 years. And that was very salutary, I think. And I think that was one of the most useful functions that Spycatcher had actually uh, achieved, was that it told us how these people interacted and how they didn't trust each other uh, and how some of the judgments they made when, when, you, when the full light, uh, full daylight was put on it, looked very, very inappropriate. Uh, you know, their political position was very clear, very right wing in most cases, and uh, they, their involvement with various events was very questionable. Uh, the minor strike, various other UK issues where they'd been monitoring people engaged in legitimate political protest, they had been monitoring and acting often against them. So that was, a, that, that poor trade, a very poor run organisation. What then happened was that I think they realised after the Cold War, so we're talking after 89, there's a real sea change occurs with uh, the intelligence agencies because in the first instance, um, a lot of what they'd been doing for 30 years <coughs> Was up for, was no longer relevant really in the way it had been. It had been a very clear uh, binary relate. There was the Soviet bloc, and there was uh, the West, and they spied on each other. And the you know it was a very it was it was a very murky world, but it was very clear where the, the lines fell as to who was on what side and all that. And suddenly, there's no longer a Soviet bloc. And these intelligence agencies are saying, well, okay, uh, where do we go from here? And they start to realize that actually they're going to have to change their game. So you get a really quite interesting period. And they start to all move into organized crime because they, they want to fill the vacuum. And like all good bureaucracies, they want to maintain their size. So um, the other thing that's occurring with them is that they, people are saying, well, what are they there for? There's a new mood sweeping through. There's a need for transparency. So, um, so they're bringing brought, brought, they're bringing being brought to account as to what their actions are. 
you know, what do you do, why are you there, how do you handle what you do? And they clearly made a decision in this period that they needed to actually improve their relationship initially with the media. So in the 90s, they start to look for journalists that they can actually have a relationship with. Because if you look back in the prior period, which I talked I talked to you about people who were getting information from within the intelligence and from IRD, sanitised, but that was a privileged arrangement. It was a secret arrangement, no one knew about it. So uh, what was clearly needed was a more open form of intelligence media relationship. So they started to approach each news organisation to move forward with this, and they, they identified accredited journalists. They wanted to work with accredited journalists with the agreement of the newspaper. And uh, I was one of those who was approached, and with the agreement of the editor, I was the independence, and then the independent Sunday's point person for intelligence to, um, uh, between the intelligence agencies and the news desk. Now, there are examples where this worked, uh, where stories were fed through. But what I can say is in the time I did it, I was never fed stories. What it was there for, the process was, for me to be able to ring them up and say, uh, look, we're doing a story on this. We believe you've done this or that, or we're not sure about something. We will talk to you. And uh, they would make themselves available, and they would say whether something was true or not true within certain parameters. Now this wasn't this wasn't open because when we did it, it was um, it wasn't uh, a question of us. Uh, we couldn't say MI five sources. So if we quoted uh, something they told us, we had to. The part of the agreement was it would always have to be Whitehall sources. But we we come to the conclusion that it was better to have some avenue of approach where you could discuss matters with intelligence at a sensible level, and. Um, and rather than this anonymous arrangement that existed where only certain people were allowed who completely seemed to have a relationship with them, my advantage was that I had always been critical and I didn't have a relationship with them in any way, so I was well known not to have that. So I found it, it, was, it was a very interesting period. I have to say, it, it had its moments of amusement because on my, on, with MI5, the... Um, first meeting I had with them, because the way this worked was that they would approach you, you would have, there would be a discussion with the editor about whether this was a way forward, what the terms were, whether the terms were acceptable, and then you would go to meet them to, to, to have lunch. And the, the first place that they chose to have lunch was a restaurant called KGB. <laughs> so um, that was interesting. But one of the, you know, it was very interesting as a journalist because I'd known the Peter Wright generation, who were often ex-military guys, they weren't very good, um, and you, you really quite despaired of them in a way. They were Machiavellian, Machiavellian but incompetent. And there was a new generation coming through, I think, in the, in the late 90s, uh, of people who were, had been recruited from a much broader area. And they really showed some sort of engagement, You at least you know, you didn't necessarily agree with what they would, they'd done or their approach, but you could see that these were intelligent, thoughtful people, which was, and they'd come from a much wider range than the old traditional intelligence agencies. So, uh, so I found myself doing this quite regularly, and of course, during 9-11, Iraq, yeah, Afghan, when we were beginning to get domestic terrorism, particularly at the time of the bomb attacks in uh, 2005, which we call 7-7, 
uh, it, you know, we had a lot of contact with them. And by and large, it, it worked well. <coughs> no one was really comfortable with the fact that we couldn't identify them. And in fact, it was confusing. And I, in a paper I've written, I pointed out that I was criticised on one occasion for supposedly referring to because uh, uh, I had my own I had my own contacts within intelligence, and it was really hard to define who was a, a, a legit, you know, who was a, a disguised uh, but agreed accredited contact, and ones that were telling me things off the record, who were my own sources. So it was really hard to how you put that into a news story, and it, that that was a very tricky area because also. Intelligence is such a difficult area to get sources. If you can get more than one, you, you know, you, you, sometimes you have to rely on one source, which is really difficult territory for a working journalist. You, 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 know, you really have to talk to the editor. I've got one source for this, but it's someone I've known for a very long while who I believe to be reliable. And it's one of the few areas where journalists will operate with one source. And, and then it's a very delicate, it, relate, it, it, it sort of somewhat relies on your reputation as a journalist. So I, I continued doing that through till about 2007, 2008. And uh, meanwhile, I'd also started teaching. So um, I, I moved, I've moved over to um, being an academic in 2009. And I joined uh, Brunel as a research academic there. And one of the things that I've um, been trying to do, because um, journalists like to think of themselves as thoughtful, uh, reflective people. But the truth of the matter is that most of the time you don't have an opportunity. And I think if you're, uh, you're a group of fellows, you've all probably come out of the newsroom somewhere, that you will know that, okay, you're engaged in intellectually with your work, but actually every day is, you've got some delivery. You know, even as an investigative journalist where you are, uh, you've got, even if you've got a month or two months to deliver something, the pressure is on all the time. So you do a story, you get that story out, you move on to the next story. There's another story that you haven't finished off. You bring that in. So you do this, and in my case, I did this for 30 years. And actually, you don't get a lot of time to sit back and think, well, whoa, what were we doing then? What was all that about? Should we have done it that way, or could we have done it better? So one of the things I found very interesting about you know, moving into the academy is the opportunity to think about some of this. And naturally, as intelligence has been the dominant theme of my you know, career, I, you know, investigations is one, organised crimes another, but intelligence has been very dominant over this period, I've been thinking a lot about it and how it's worked and how it's changed. And I've tried to examine you know, the various things that have happened. And you know, I've been fairly candid with you about the accredited system, which some people really don't like. But it, one of the things that the accredited system did, for instance, I'm just deviating on a particular point here, but the, the, uh, the, the accredited system stopped something that I thought was pretty significant. Because whilst it wasn't open and transparent to the public, it actually stopped a lot of, uh, of jiggery-pokery that was going on in newspapers. Because I... I in my, from the earliest days, I'd been conscious that were journalists who played fast and loose with intelligence sources. And this first dawned on me in my early days um, as a journalist, where I used to sit opposite a freelance. And this freelance was very, very friendly with the editor of the paper I was working for at the time. And uh, they got on very well. And he, 
and I, he would sit opposite me and he claimed to have a number of MI5 sources. And I was sitting there one day and he always seemed to make these calls in front of me. So he'd pick up the phone and he'd, he'd, make, he'd dial the number because they were dial phones in those days and he'd pick up the phone and he'd be talking to this person. And he'd say, oh yes, is that right then? So, so, um, so that spy was moved there, was he? Oh, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm thinking, what you think of this? And it dawned on me one day, he wasn't talking to anybody, he was talking to the, what, the speaking clock, as it would have been in those days. <laughs> so he was using me, so that if he needed to, I realised that if he, the editor, he said, oh yes, I, you know, I was talking to my MI5 source, you heard me, didn't you, Paul? I was talking to my MI5 source. And I suddenly realised he wasn't talking to anyone. Now this was not an uncommon occurrence. And if you go back, particularly Daily Express lurks in my mind in a big way, uh, and look through in the... In the, in the period of the 60s, 70s, 80s, there are endless stories which say, you know, MI6 sources or MI5 sources. And quite frankly, there's no proof that those people spoke, spoke to MI5 or MI6 people at all. And, you know, so I, because at that point, the intelligence agencies and the you know, security <coughs> services really had a policy, the government had a policy of not confirming or denying. In this country, um, We've only really accepted that they existed legally for just over 20 years now. So before that, the government position was we do not confirm or deny. Well, if you're a dishonest journalist, there's a lot of room for play in there. Because you can make anything up and say anything. And who's going to challenge you? Because they're not going to turn around and say, you, you know, nobody from MI5 possibly said that because they're not going to say anything. So one of the advantages of the accredited system is it's not that out of the game. You know, and there are many, there, there may, may be aspects of it that people don't like, but I think, and I'm, I'm perfectly happy to discuss this, that that's worked really well in the favour of at least getting down to the nitty gritty. You, you know, you can put the questions there to those agencies and they can, um, they can answer or not answer. I was sufficiently interested in this that one, I've, um, uh, one of the papers I've written looked at, I was trying to work out, because it all comes down to the concept of trust in this. It, the, the, there are, if you think that in every major British news organisation at the moment there will be one accredited journalist, and that journalist hopefully is sceptical and saying, you know, classically in what the old journalistic phrase is, why is the lying bastard lying to me? You're thinking, what's going on here? Are they really telling me the truth? And you're watching the whole time. And you're thinking, yes, well, that trip turned out to be true, that turned out to be true. So I, I did an analysis of this around the, what's known as the uh, part of the 7-7 story, the bomb um, back in 2005, was that a particular, the, the guy who was identified as the ringleader of the bomb group, whether he was known to Ember 5 or not. And this became very contentious because initially the intelligence agencies said, they didn't know uh, much about him, and then it became clear that he'd been on their radar beforehand. So, were they lying or were they telling the truth? So, one of the things that I did early in my new academic career is to try and look at what had actually occurred. And so, I went through all the evidence I could find on this particular case. There'd been also it'd been uh, it looked into by a select committee, and I had to conclude that. Um, that it, I did not believe that MI5 had deliberately misled anybody on this. It, you know, I think they did not know what they, how much they had had contact because he was on the, on, on the, on the peripheral. So I found myself in an unusual situation after 30 years of looking at intelligence, actually saying, 
I think they're telling the truth here. And, uh, you know, I'd need to see something more conclusive before I think they were lying. So I, I found that an interesting part of being analytical to, you know, I've been very critical of all their events before. Now look, trying to look at it, slightly pulling myself back and saying what's really going on here. So that was one of the first things I did looking at that. The second thing, because I'm conscious I don't want to, you, you, I, I shouldn't talk for too long. But the second thing I'm now doing is I'm trying to work out how you frame um, the relationship between intelligence and the media. Because there's a lot of distrust between the two groups. Um, journalists will accuse intelligence of lying to them a lot, or they will be over-patriotic, you know, and that's come out with Snowden. You've seen the British media uh, split on whether um, the Snowden information should be revealed. Um, and there's a, so you've got a split in that. And in fact, uh, Julian Petley, who's here with us today, has a, had a piece uh, uh, in The Guardian which, uh, about the way that the parts of the British media have turned on The Guardian about the Snowden affair. So there's really big ethical issues coming out here. Also, um, so which side is lying to who and you know, who's acting honourably is quite a vexed question. So there's been very little research, so I'm trying to find a way of actually framing this, think about it in terms of you know, when, do, when do the intelligence agencies want to operate in the public sphere? Because they've always said they, they didn't exist. You know, well, they've not said, but the government always said they didn't exist, and they, they had, they, therefore they, in theory, weren't in the public sphere. But actually, they were always in the public sphere. They were always there acting undercover. They were always feeding journalists information. They were always um, publishing books that suited them. They were always engaged. And the leading um, intelligence his historian, um, Richard Aldrich made the remark that actually they've very clearly framed the way we perceive them in all sorts of ways. Uh, it, whether it's the way they get their, they, they have relationships with ex, their ex-intelligence um, operators, uh, you know, officers often publish their memoirs in certain ways. Some, mo more notably, in a, in a funny sort of way, have um, uh, gone on, like Ian Fleming, to create fictional characters which actually have a stronger resonance for most people about what MI6 is than actually the reality. Uh, you know, I think uh, the, the notion of James Bond and Smiley's people and many other of those kind of, and Spooks, the TV series about MI5, has framed the way we see intelligence in, in, in much more powerfully than actual our real knowledge about what, who they are and what they do. So, um, so I'm trying to find, so that's public sphere. When do they enter the public sphere? What are they seeking to achieve? They do enter in the public sphere from time to time. Most recently, during the Snowden affair, there were three, the three senior heads of intelligence were uh, uh, sat at a select committee and gave their position, which is probably the most strongest uh, uh, appearance in the public sphere we've ever seen intelligence, um, senior intelligence officials engage in. Um, what's, the, what does the, what's the role of the uh, media in this? Is it a fourth estate uh, relationship? But the, the thing that's really quite tricky here at one level is you've got two different academic <laughs> traditions to work with because 
I, I'm out of the journalism studies tradition, if you like, uh, which comes out of Stuart Hall and cultural studies. And then you've got the intelligence studies people who come out of an entirely different. So they, uh, you know, I try to talk to them uh, and discuss how they're trying to currently, because intelligence theory is still at a fairly early stage. So they're trying to work out ways of framing what intelligence is. There's still arguments about, and I'm using intelligence in its wider sense. So, you know, what is intelligence? Does it include proactive? Is it only intelligence gathering? Is it, is it MI, is MI5 an intelligence agency or a security? All these questions are being thought through at the moment. So I'm trying to find a synthesis um, and some kind of framework, some kind of conceptual idea, which enables me to sort of work through how these two elements work together and in, and who, and in whose interest and how could it improve? Because it clearly isn't working at the moment, as you know from um, the Snowden. You, I understand you've had people speak to you about Snowden and you will know about it you know there is this constant debate where journalists say we're going to put into the public domain this information which shows intelligence has been engaged in mass surveillance without any kind proper pro kind of accountability or political agreement and then they turn around and say if you release that you're putting lives in danger so you've got this confrontation and it's, for me, it's something I've heard many times over the years. Uh, I've, I've done stories myself, or I've been, you know, on the, I've, you know, I've seen many stories that I've been involved in where in the, the response of intelligence of politicians is, by revealing this information, you are putting lives at danger. Now, that's a serious allegation. And it's one that journalists need to consider. You know, is an editor um, the appropriate person to make a decision about national security. Now, it's, it's a really tricky one, but one of the things I'm doing at the moment is looking at all the examples of putting lives in danger. And I have to say that if I go back over them, there are very few cases where you can actually say that a person's life was put in danger by what a journalist put out there. So. That, and, and that's that someone has died as a result. What is more difficult is why, if you reveal the GCHQ's general methods, does that allow a terrorist group to operate more freely, uh, which is much harder to quantify? So, I'm, I'm, you know, one needs to look at that. How does that impact? What are the examples? What do we know about that? So, I'm trying to look at that, and I'm also trying to look at the question of ethics. You know, is there a way that intelligence agencies should operate ethically? There are several people in intelligence studies, uh, Ross Ballaby at the moment, is looking at um, whether there could be an ethical approach to intelligence gathering. And I've been reading him and talking to him about that because it seems to be, to be quite a, an interesting area to think about because you get into questions like just wars. So interesting <laughs> concepts, some of which go back to virtue, you know, Aristotle's virtue ethics, uh, the notions of a just war, uh, Thomas Aquinas. So, you know, some of these things have been with us in one form or another for a very long while. And on the other hand, of course, media ethics, well, again, if Snowden's topical, then media, ethic, media ethics is very topical. You've got the whole phone hacking issue, 
um, and you know what you know how do journalists operate are they really operating uh, you know what's their ethical dimension are they responsible just uh, to wind up I would just say that um, in my own opinion at this point I'm pretty well with The Guardian. I've thought about this long and hard, and I think The Guardian has acted responsibly. I was recently at a, a conference in Canada, where, uh, which was mainly an intelligence study, where I, I sat there because I'd not been in intelligence studies groups before, so I just sort of sat there for a couple of days, and then I got really fed up with hearing people complain about The Guardian. And I said, well, you know, actually, you keep saying that how irresponsible they've been, but, uh, you know, take GCHQ, for instance, I know that there were 58,000 documents released by, in, in the Snowden batch about GCHQ, yet the Guardian has released but a handful of those. None of them refer to current terrorism operations. They've not released anything that would interfere with a terrorist operation. They've acted very responsible. What they focused on is mass surveillance operations particularly, whereby uh, that, that don't seem to have got appropriate political and public su uh, su support or approval. Now, I think that's, you know, that's pretty damn good. And I think that each country at the moment is looking at the implications of what Snowden has done, and it raises quite serious ethical um, and political issues. And, and uh, you know... You speak to somebody who comes from Germany, they perceive it different from someone who comes from France. Um, the Canadian, uh, a student my here who's been looking at the Canadian uh, aspect of this. The Americans, the Americans, you know, there's where the, there was a very virulent response to the Snowden. Actually, it's had a big impact. One of the big questions has been, why no reaction in the UK? And that was really quite puzzling. But I think with the release of the Select Committee report earlier this week from Keith Baz, we are now seeing a really, um, really perhaps we are seeing finally that the big questions are being asked and that actually that they, you know, was, did we have an effective form of accountability with the Intelligence and Security Commission? Answer is pretty well certainly no, we didn't. And there's some really quite damning information on that. So I think it's a really very rich area for someone who is a, a practitioner turned academic to try and try and get some kind of analysis of what all this is about, what it means, and what is a way forward which we can get some way. You know, national security is a really important question and that we need to find some better synthesis between the two sides where there is some level of agreement because clearly at the moment I don't think there is. Thank you.